You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles, the Bible you brought with you, the Bible that's there in the pew, and if you want to be tech savvy, your mobile phone, your uh, tablet, open up based on the instructions on the screen to the YouVersion Bible app, to the book of Micah chapter 4. And as you're getting to the book of Micah chapter 4, let me share with you uh, something that I learned a couple years ago that's kind of stuck with me. For thousands of years, thousands of years, that's a long time, Jews have been greeting each other, not with hello and goodbye, but Jews typically greet each other with the blessing, Shalom Alechem, which means peace unto you. And if you ever hear this greeting, the other person will then respond, Alechem Shalom, which means unto you peace. This uh, traditional greeting is not just a way that people address each other in the Jewish community, but it's actually the name of a song, the song, that begins the Sabbath meal every Friday night for them. And the origins of this greeting and of this song come from the final words of an ancient blessing given by the Lord through Moses to his brother Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. You probably have heard these words before as Moses told Aaron how to bless the people in the community. From number six, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Peace is the theme that summarizes the next two chapters of the book of Micah, the prophet Micah, who we've been spending some time with. If you haven't been with us, or if you need to catch up a little bit, God spoke through Micah to the capitals of both the northern and southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom's capital was Samaria, the southern kingdom's capital was Jerusalem. And what we've learned over the last couple of weeks as we've been in the first three chapters is both nations, north and south, have had the hypocrisy of their idolatry and the cru- their cruel injustice against those in need laid bare by the cutting words of Micah. In the first three chapters, we have heard inconvenient truths declared to a people who have continued to live by dishonest gains, violent actions, and a host of lies. And it's been hard. It's been, it's been some heavy reading. It's been heavy as the suffering have been given a voice and as the victims have become visible because the Lord in the midst of it all has promised a reckoning. The righting of all that is wrong will come by God's hand, but it will not come without consequences. Both kingdoms eventually will fall from glory. The northern kingdom of Israel will disappear into history. The southern kingdom of Judah will experience a prolonged time of domination by its neighboring nations. And you would think with this setup, with where we've been so far, that turning the page, it's just going to get worse still. And yet, against this backdrop of coming calamity and judgment, as we turn the page to Micah chapter 4 this morning, suddenly, shockingly, surprisingly, a new picture emerges for us, a beautiful and compelling vision of peace. If you have those Bibles open, I'd like to read a little, bit, a little bit of that vision for you from Micah chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, starting in verse 1. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of all mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. 
Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the law from Jerusalem, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. This morning, our focus is going to be twofold. Twofold. First, I want to try to help us more clearly understand God's vision for peace as expressed here through Micah. That's first. Second, I want us to consider out of that how we can experience and share this vision of peace that God has for us in our daily lives. So, let's first kind of dive in a little bit deeper and, and better appreciate the vision that God gives to Micah for us this morning. The Lord's vision for peace. As you probably noticed, you ho- certainly heard, it's a vision that starts with this image of a mountain, and I hope you have that picture in your mind. And you may or may not know this, but a mountain is a very common image in the Bible. Biblically, mountains are associated with God's presence. You think about a mountain right now, you have it in your mind's eye. Mountains in the majesty of their elevation figuratively represent both the height of the separation between humanity and the Lord, as well as the means of bridging that gap of the meeting of heaven and earth. If a person wants to get to God, in other words, one has to look, one has to go up the mountain. But at the same time, God has to come down. Biblically, mountains represent a place to meet with the Lord. And the most obvious example to think of would be when you think of Moses and Mount Sinai. But mountains also have this aspect that mountains are very visible, right? If you've ever been on a drive, you, don't, you can't miss a mountain that comes into view. One can see a mountain from very far away. And, and this embodies this idea, invoking a mountain in this way, that this vision that God gives Micah is a vision that everyone's intended to see. It's intended to be visible to all. Notice that in the description, the... Um, image that's invoked is said to be the highest of all mountains. What Micah shares, in other words, and sees is the chief of all visions that the Lord has for this world. Everything else remains in the background. Everything else the Lord intends flows out of this vision for peace for his creation. It is a sight that will not be overshadowed, obscured, or eclipsed by anything else, by any other human goal or earthly pursuit. This is paramount. There will be peace by the Lord's hand, we hear, and no one will fail to see it unless one chooses to ignore what is right in front of them. One other thing that just comes to mind when I think of mountains that I think is appropriate when we consider this vision is mountains are stationary, right? They don't, they're not very movable. You know, you can, we can shave off a portion of a mountain or we can bore a hole through a mountain, but ultimately mountains remain immovable, unshakable. And this aspect of a mountain also plays into this idea that this vision that God has is everlasting, the everlasting nature of this peace that God seeks to bring. No one's going to stop it from coming, nothing will stop it, and nothing will ever take it away. This will be, and it will last forever. So, 
that's kind of the entry point into this vision, but then we dive a little bit deeper. We want to get into the content. What is the content of this peace the Lord will bring? And there's kind of three hooks I want to give you to appreciate what Micah unpacks for us. The content of this piece is about divine wisdom. It's about transformative justice. And it's about shalom. So as we unpack these verses, it's about divine wisdom, it's about transformative justice, and it's about shalom. In verse 2, Micah talks about how many nations will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. This The content of this vision of peace is this idea of divine wisdom. Instead of trying to figure out life on our own, rather than living with uncertainty about who we are, why we're here, and if we're really going anywhere, the Lord offers us both as people and as the nations the peace of mind, of heart, and soul, of learning from and being guided by him. We can discover by the Lord's grace that the distance between two points, where we are to where we were created to be, to become together, is following the path the Lord lays before us. We can receive the calm of knowing which way to go and the assurance, no matter the hills or valleys we encounter, we will get to where we need to be. Again, as individuals and as a global community, it's a both and. And so right from the get-go, the content of this piece we see that's about wisdom comes out of this posture of worship. True worship is the starting point of this peace that God seeks to give us. When we stop looking at ourselves as the center of the universe, when we devote not just a part of our lives, but orient our whole life around our creator, then we can be taught. Then we can be led as people and as nations of this world to live as God intended. The content of this piece is first about this wisdom that comes from worship. But it flows into what I call transformative justice too. This instruction, this leading by the Lord extends as we open ourselves up, as we orient ourselves towards God, it extends even into our differences and disputes with one another. Again, those differences and disputes both as individuals but also as nations. We talked about justice last week. That was the theme of last week. But one of the things we took away from last week, I hope, is the awareness, though sometimes we forget, that human justice is imperfect. It's limited. And therefore, it is inherently flawed. We live in a world where, despite the fact that it does not balance the scales, we still continue to pursue personal and communal vengeance. But punitive justice, and that's the kind of justice we practice, punitive justice where everybody gets what they deserve, Punitive justice affords no real healing or consolation for anyone. And so God, again, in instructing us and guiding us, that leads into the differences and disputes we have into a different kind of peace, a true and lasting peace that comes only when we rely on the Lord for justice, only when we look to the Lord to ultimately right all the wrongs, rather than taking matters into our own hands. What we're given here is a picture of instead of the temptation of striking back and getting our pound of flesh from those who have wronged us, the Lord through Micah casts this alternative vision, not of punitive justice, but of what I'm calling restorative or transformative justice. You see, what we're given is this vision of when we leave the final judgment to the courts of heaven, when we trust only God can reconcile all the hostilities and conflicts among persons and nations, What all of a sudden will happen is the battlefields of earth will become the harvest fields of peace. 
And in and, and, and this image that Mike has given, it's really, st- no, no, it's, 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 it's quite a contrast because nothing is starker than the difference, isn't it, between raiding and farming. This vision between preparing for battle and the vision of preparing for planting. Whereas Micah describes it, the valuable metals of swords and spears are recycled and repurposed into plowshares and pruning hooks. Weapons of violence and defense designed to shed blood and spread death will become, by the grace of God, converted into cooperative tools to plant seeds and cultivate life. The content of this vision of peace that God has is this divine wisdom that gives us security, that gives us assurance and confidence, but it's this wisdom that also gives us justice. Justice that doesn't just resolve but transforms everything. And that ultimately leads to the third element of this vision of peace, which is this idea of shalom. The fruition, if you will, pun intended, of this transformation is beautifully captured as Micah in verse 4 describes everyone sitting under their own vine and their own fig tree. It's my favorite part of this this passage. And and really the telling part of this description is the last part of verse 4 where he doesn't just talk of everyone sitting under their own vine and their own fig tree, but then he adds, and no one will make them afraid. This last part is really going to tease out to us how, much, how different, how, what a contrast this vision of peace that God has for us is from our understanding, our uh, visualization of peace. I mean, if, if you stop for a second, most of us, when we speak of peace, when we try to imagine it, right, usually what we envision or talk about is the absence of something. We usually talk about peace in terms of the absence of something, right? I mean, if you stop and think about it, that's the connotation of our English word for peace. It's, as weird as this sounds, inherently negative. It describes the absence of something. I mean, think about it. We are at peace when there's no war, no conflict, or violence. We feel peaceful when there's no noise or busyness, right? We're at peace when our hearts and minds aren't preoccupied or troubled. Peace is the absence of something, and therefore peace, as we use the word, has this feeling of emptiness, nothingness, neutrality at best. Perhaps the best example I can think of of this skewed understanding of peace is how often do we say a person is at peace when he or she is dead? Right? But when we think of peace in this way as the absence of something, it really gives us a very shallow definition. It gives us something that's really kind of lifeless and, frankly, boring. But what Micah sees here, what Micah gives us, this vision delivered by the Lord through Micah, as it rounds out of this, this final picture of the vine and the fig tree and particularly the idea of not being afraid, what, what we suddenly, if we open our eyes to see this vision of, that God has for peace, the Lord's intended meaning of that word is so much bigger than what, what we limit it to. It's more than the absence of something. Peace, as God unpacks it, is the fulfillment of everything. Everything for which we were created. That's the essence of the biblical word for peace, which actually is the Hebrew word shalom, which I started telling you about at the beginning of this sermon, sermon, shalom. And did you know that that word shalom, the Hebrew word and its Greek counterpart, appear 550 times in the Bible? This is an important word, a core word in God's vocabulary for us, shalom. And 
what I, I'm going to kind of be a little bit repetitive right here. I want to marinate a little, marinate a little bit in this word shalom because I really want you to understand in the, just the, the briefest of moments the, how the breadth and width of this word cannot be captured fully with our one English word of peace. It's so much bigger than that. So for example, in our Bibles, listen, shalom is translated with the following English words. These are all the different translations of shalom. Shalom is translated into English as welfare, completeness, to cause to be at peace, to make peace, peace offering, it's at rest, it's at ease, it's to be secure, it's to be safe, it's to finish well, it's to prosper, it's to be whole, it's to be perfect, it's to be victorious. Are you getting tired yet? Had enough? There's no way. In one word, all of this is captured. We cannot convey it without continuing to just con- come up with more and more ways of saying it. Uh, the best way to kind of take this bul- the bulkiness of, all, of this word and, and trying to make it concise is to understand that shalom is the word for peace describes the complete flourishing and satisfaction of all life and creation. That's God's vision for peace. I mean, so when we think about, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, this word shalom used as a greeting or a wish to a friend or a loved one in the Jewish community, what shalom is conveying, so much richer than hello or goodbye, right? Shalom as a greeting or a wish, is conveying to another person the hope and prayer for life and the world, for all of us and the rest of creation to operate the way it's supposed to be, the way God intended it to be. Shalom is one of those words that Jesus uses to describe the kingdom of God on earth. He uses it not only to describe the way of the kingdom on earth, but he also uses the word shalom to describe the way in which we, as God's kingdom people, empowered as the Holy Spirit, ought to live together. Shalom, this rich, deep word, signifies wholeness, soundness, integrity, connectedness, and well-being. Someone wants to find shalom this way, and I really like it. This definition really works for me. They wrote, shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Justice, fulfillment, and delight. And I really think that captures the vision that Micah has here. It captures where we once were and where we now are. Sin, there's that three-letter word again, sin, our continued rebellion against and rejection of God fractured our right relationship with the Lord, right? It fractured our right relationship with ourselves. It fractured our right relationship with one another. It fractures even our relationship with this world in which we live. And shalom is the mending, the restoration of all those relationships. That's the vision for peace that God has. That's the vision that God gives us through Micah here, where every person is under their own vine and fig tree. Do you, do you, are you seeing it now, that this, this image, when you picture that? The picture of every person under their own vine and fig tree is figuratively taking each of us back to the garden, unafraid and unashamed, in union with God, content with ourselves, in harmony with each other, and cultivating the natural world together as stewards of the land instead of killing each other to possess it and its wealth. This is not just a vision of the future. This is the vision of the beginning, the way God intended our lives to be. 
It's the vision that paints a picture of those wonderful New Testament words that describe God's vision, God's gospel, as perfect love casting out fear. It's so compelling. It's so compelling, this vision. It's so captivating. Did you catch this in verse one of this chapter? Micah writes, people and the nations will stream towards it. Did you hear what I just said? They will stream towards it. Stop for a second. There's a mountain and people are going to stream towards it. Everyone catch the problem here? Things don't normally stream or flow up a mountain. They stream or flow down. That's the magnetism of this vision. That's the magnetism of this promise. It's so captivating that it literally turns life as we know it on its head so that we are drawn up even despite how gravity works. And what's, that this is, this is the core vision that God has, that this isn't just a Micah thing, is if you, maybe, maybe when we were reading this, some of you might have even said, this sounds familiar to me, but I don't remember it in Micah. What's crazy is we find the exact same masterpiece painted and on display in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2, if you were to go open it right now, he was a contemporary of Micah. In the second chapter of his writings, he is given the exact same vision which he shares with the people. This picture of integrated, joyous, living in relationships. This image of universal and lasting individual and global prosperity that seamlessly touches every area of our lives and flows into and out of our communities. It's compelling. It's captivating. And yet, I've, in conversations with people about this passage and just even talking about this, this theme of peace, this vision that God has for peace, many of us, if we really step back, see this as a vision for the future. We read Micah's words here and we go, yeah, someday, yeah, someday. But late breaking news flash, beloved, this is not a vision of the future for us. Back in Micah's day, as he was writing to those who were about to head into exile, back in Micah's day, to those who were living without the Messiah, still waiting for the Messiah, yes, indeed, this was a vision of the future. But for us, beloved, on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, this is a vision for our present. Knowing and experiencing Jesus as we do, filled with the Holy Spirit as we are, we are no longer removed from the intimacy of God's heart. Having, as Paul writes, the mind of Christ being given eyes to see by the light of the word and empowered by the spirit, we are more than just able to catch this vision of what God is doing. Not just what God will do, but what God is doing in this world of ours. To bring this home for you, you'll notice also in verse one of this chapter that Micah, Micah speaks in the midst of a mountain. He speaks of the establishment of the temple of the Lord. And many of us read this and you hear temple and mountain and you think back to the temple, the physical temple that was built in Jerusalem. And this is all wrong because the temple that God, not just through Micah, but through, through all the prophets, through Jesus himself declares he will build is not a temple made with human hands. It is not the temple that was once known in Jerusalem. No, if you know your Bible, if you know our story, beloved, through the blood of Jesus, the empty tomb and the gift of Pentecost, we are the temple. Micah here envisions the church. The living body of Christ where the Lord's presence now dwells. This is not a vision of the future. This is a vision of our present. The Lord Jesus Christ told us plainly in the Sermon on the Mount in advance that we are to be a city on a hill, the salt and light to the world. 
We are not just to be sitting tight and waiting for peace with Christ's return. Yes, someday, someday. We are to be those who are, by the grace of God, working for the way of peace in anticipation of Jesus' arrival. I could, could quote tons of different scriptures, but the simplest one, and it just fits the bill, is when the Apostle Paul writes, almost as a tagline at the end of Romans 12, that amazing passage, so far as it depends on you, you are to live peacefully with all. And so unpacking this vision leads us to the second place I want to go. Of what does that look like? What, what does that involve experiencing and sharing God's vision for peace? And again, I'm going to tell you three things that I think I see here from Micah. How do we experience and live this vision that God has for peace? First, we have to be willing to see it. Second, we have to decide to believe it. And third, we have to be committed to practice it. We have to be willing to see it, we have to decide to believe it, and we have to be committed to practicing it. And with the willingness to see it is where we start. It, it begins, this vision for peace begins with having peace with God. We have to look to the right mountain. <laughs> we have to look to the right mountain. If you've been with us in Micah, in the very beginning of this series, I told you that one of the biggest problems that's happening is idolatry, Right? And one of the ways that idolatry is running rampant in the northern and southern kingdom is through what are called high places, where people are trying to construct these false gods, these idols at, on high places as somehow that's the place to look, to look for wisdom, to look for justice, to look for salvation, to look for complete completion, all these things that we've just talked about. And Micah, along with the other prophets, says those high places aren't high enough. And my friends, this isn't just a problem in Micah's day. This is a problem that's continued throughout human history because throughout human history, we have and continue to try to make God in our own image. Idolatry is a problem because idolatry is how we reinforce our, and promote our definitions versus the Lord's definitions of things. When we talk about living into this vision that God has for peace, the first place we have to ask ourselves is, are we willing to see it? We have to ask ourselves, where does our vision of peace come from? I already talked about the typical way we talk about peace, how shallow, how shallow, how it doesn't even compare with God's vision. But is that the one that defines our lives? Is that the one that drives us? And we could even step back and ask where our definition of power comes from. Because the interesting thing is, is how we define power leads to how we define peace. So let's just stop for a second and think about the relationship between power and peace. How do we define power? When we talk about being powerful, when we talk about power, what are the things we talk about? How do we paint that picture? For us, if we're honest, and this is harsh, but when you strip it all away, all the ways we try to dress it up and make it look pretty, power for you and me is about getting our way and enforcing our will on others, right? Power is about getting what I want. And getting my will. Power is about me exercising my authority. Power is about me exercising my rightness. And because this is how we define power, right? About getting our way and enforcing our will, our, our will on others. What is peace? Back to our, def, our shallow definition. Peace is achieved, if that's what power is, by defending ourselves or attacking our enemies. Getting you to shut up. Shutting you down. Making you go away. That's how I exercise power, and when I accomplish those things, I have peace. Ah. Remember, peace for us is the absence of conflict or tension. Peace for us, the best we can come up with is the ultimate picture of peace for you and me is death. The gods we make in our image 
reflect our understanding of power and peace. If this is how we define power as getting what we want, enforcing our will on others, if peace is about defending ourselves and attacking our enemies, then the gods that we make in our image reflect this understanding of power and this achievement of peace. Let's look at the, perhaps the universal icon for a god made in our own image. Zeus. How does Zeus rule? Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening. Right? That's power, and that's how peace is accomplished. Zap! Right? One of the core revelations of the scriptures, one of the foundational premises of our faith, is that God isn't created in our image. We are created in the image of God. That is simple but profound. And when we are willing to see that, we can begin to see a different vision of not only power, but of peace. Because when we are willing to see God and ourselves created to reflect his glory, him, his image, we suddenly see that the God who created us from the very beginning until the end of the world as we know it and onward into eternity exercises a different kind of power and therefore, as we've heard, casts a different vision of peace. You ever stop and think about this? The perfect expression biblically of God's power is not the taking up of arms against sinners, but the perfect expression of power biblically is the laying down of his life for his enemies. We love to think of Jesus roaring like a lion. Man, I can't tell you how many people get geeked up. Jesus is the lion of Judah. We love to think about Jesus roaring like a lion, but the scriptures proclaim, yes, indeed, Jesus roars like a lion, but he roars with the ferocious, self-sacrificial love of the lamb. This is how God rules. This is how God overcomes evil. This is how God brings peace, not through striking back or striking down, but God lives into the very vision he gives Micah. He casts a vision through Micah, right, of swords and spears being, tra being transformed into plowshares and pruning hooks. God lives into that very vision himself. Did you, do, you, do we realize this? When he takes that, this, that is a, was a man-made image designed to invoke fear, designed to bring suffering, designed to deliver death, and God transforms this very image. We're so used to it, we don't even think about it anymore. But if you were to go back in time and you were to invite people into your church and have a giant cross, they would go, what kind of people are you? Because God took this image and transformed it not into an image of life, of death, but of life. Not into an image of terror, but of hope. Not into an image of suffering, but of love. The road map to the Lord's vision for peace begins with where we look. And my friends, the peace of Christ is not like the peace the world gives. To live into this vision for peace, we have to be willing to see it. Are you looking for peace in the right place? Are you captivated by the right mountain? Micah is clear. We can only experience the shalom of God. It will only become a reality for us if we, and by we I mean not just us as individuals, but we as nations, are willing to submit to the word that comes forth from God, the Lord's definition of peace. Are we living by that definition? 
Is that just limited to the hour on Sunday that we're here to this space? Does it come into the other discussions we have? Because peace is a word we talk about a lot. Is it informed by God's understanding of power, by God's definition of peace? Do we truly believe? I know we say it. I know we pray it. I know we put it on our t-shirts and bumper stickers. Do we truly believe in the end the love of Christ will conquer everything? Do you believe that? Do we believe that the love of God in Christ makes us more than conquerors? Some of you have said yes, some of you have not. Maybe you're saying yes in your heart. Do we believe it or are we? I mean, and I mean step back, not right now. Step back and reflect on what your life is like outside of this time and space. Do we believe in the end that the love of Christ will conquer everything, make us more than conquerors? Or if we're honest, do we live outside this space and time right here out of selfish, pride-filled ways where you and I are still trying to wage war and achieve peace on our own terms? Ask yourself, does revenge, getting others back, whether it's individually or nationally, if it defines your politics, does revenge or getting others back remain our posture? Are we content with the illusion of peace, telling ourselves we have peace by the absence of conflict, telling ourselves we have peace when we silence the opposition, or are we letting the peace of God begin with us? Living into this peace starts with making peace with God, being at peace with God, willing to see it. But the second thing I said is living into this vision of peace that God has is about the decision to believe it. It's, it's letting through our peace with God, being at peace with ourselves. The peace of God has to begin with me. To occupy, to occupy this vision of peace that God affords us, it begins first with us. We can see, we can look, we can stare at the mountain all we want, in other words, but at some point we have to start moving towards the mountain. We have to start climbing it. And that means, as Micah describes it here, being willing to be taught, being teachable. It means learning to, to see differently with our own eyes first. It means allowing our perspective to be changed. It means submitting my presupposed definitions to the Lord. And that means as we gather in the space, that's why we gather every week. That's why it's so important, whether you gather here or in your own time with the Lord, that's why this time, and we, have, we cram it out of our lives, this space of just honest reflection before God, what we call confession, is so key. Because I don't know about you, but I, I, I am a person that is like a broken record. My life plays on repeat. And I need to come back to the, this space that God carves out for me to be honest, to lay myself before him, to lay it bare and confess, because I continue to find that I have attitudes and actions that I bear, that I express, that bring disharmony and destroy the possibility of peace in this world. We gather not to be beat up, but to be set free. We gather, though, in order to be set free by checking our ego by confessing our pride, by acknowledging our desire for power, by, by admitting that we try to control and dominate others. We gather together because this is the place in the midst of everything else that tries to distract us where we face the fact of where we carry jealousy, where we are just driven by unrestrained competitiveness and greed, where despite how we protest, we all carry the seed of racism in us where we all have the, 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 the DNA of intolerance, where we all tend towards judgmentalism and perfectionism, where we look at people and whether we say it or we act this way, they will never measure up or be acceptable. 
And maybe not in this room, but maybe within your circles, for some of us it goes even deeper than that. Some of us are living lives of violence. Living lives of violence where physical, emotional, and spiritual abuse is taking place. Bullying doesn't stop on the school ground. Some of us are bullies. We gather in this space and we have to see what God sees, what God shows us, but we have to choose to believe it. But some of us, instead of choosing to believe it, instead of climbing that mountain, have dug ourselves in in our bitterness, have dug ourselves in in our unforgiveness. My friends, in what ways, ask yourself, in what ways does fear rather than love move you to action? In what ways does fear rather than love move you to action? Because if it's fear that's driving you to action, there is this disquiet in your soul. There is a lack of peace within yourself. And my friends, we cannot get to this vision that God has for peace unless we deal with the disquiet in our souls, unless we give to God this lack of peace within ourselves. There are attitudes and inclinations that need to be rooted out and we've got to lay them before God and let him through the power of the spirit make us clean, set us free. Believing in and embracing the Lord's vision for peace is about letting ourselves experience the true peace that only God can give, the peace that comes by faith in Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. Is forgiveness something you've really asked for? Or is forgiveness sort of like the footnote in the, the contract of salvation? I'm, I'm gonna hitch my star to Jesus because I'll live forever. But have you actually do you continually go back to Jesus and say, Lord, forgive me? Not because God's forgiveness is in doubt, not because the Lord might change his mind, but because we need to continually be oriented to the reality that we are a forgiven people, that we live out of that, out of our forgiveness. Is that your posture? Do you seek the forgiveness of God? Not because it's in doubt, but because of that, that orientation of that's where our life comes out of, this forgiveness from God, or are you still living your life trying to justify yourself before God? still negotiating and bargaining with God. Because my friends, God's peace is not something you can negotiate or bargain for. It's a peace that you can only receive and you can only receive it without reservation or provisions. What I'm talking about right here is when's the last time you fell down and lay yourself at the mercy of the Lord and allowed yourself to be completely embraced by the love of Christ. And that may sound obvious, but I look around and I look within myself and I think about this, the, the, something in me that hasn't changed. I love helping other people. But it bothers me. It unsettles me. I'm uncomfortable. I don't like it when I have to rely on the help of others. If that, and we're just giving one example, is at the root of me, how can I actually think that I'm willing to help receive everything from God. For some of us, it's pride. Some of us, it's ego. But for some of us, experiencing the peace that God wants to give is about forgiving yourself. Some of us, it's not a matter of knowing that God forgives us. It's a matter of refusing to forgive ourselves. My friends, hear this. There's no peace when we're at war with ourselves. When you deny yourself what the Lord wants to give you, let me take it further. When you deny yourself what the Lord wants to give you, has given you in Christ, you not only deny yourself, but you deny others from receiving what God wants to give them through you. 
If you don't receive God's forgiveness, then you can't give God's forgiveness to someone else. And you think you're punishing yourself, and you are, but you're also denying someone else who needs to be set free. Christ came to set us free from our sins. It's sin, as we've talked about, that destroyed the first peace. It's sin that continues to destroy the possibilities of peace. Don't let unconfessed sin or unforgiven sin by you deny you the peace that Jesus seeks to give you. We have to be willing to see it. We have to decide to believe it. And finally, we have to be committed to practicing it. There's peace with God, there's peace with ourselves, and then there's peace in the world. The Lord's vision of peace, as we've talked about, isn't intended as a daydream that simply stays in our head or our heart as wishful thinking. Peace is something we have to seek. It's something we have to work for by the grace of God, and that means it takes practice. We're inundated. It's so easy, isn't it, to be swept up by the old gods of war and vengeance. We're inundated by competing visions, the rhetoric of the radio, the television, all around us, voices of reason, passionate cries that encourage us to fear, to hate, to be cynical, to give others what's coming to them. And in the midst of those voices of reason and passion, they ridicule forgiveness. They ridicule nonviolence. They, just, they proclaim that even self-sacrifice is foolishness and weakness. And these voices are not new. From the very beginning, when Jesus turned this into an instrument of life, hope, and peace, Paul writes, it is foolishness to the Greeks. Foolishness and a stumbling block to those Jews who want vengeance. My friends... The commitment to living peacefully begins with the prayer for peace, to pray for peace. That's, I wrote that down and I thought that was so dumb. But I, I did this, I do this sometimes, and now you're going to stay away from me. I, when I think of something that doesn't make sense, I go and I ask people, seemingly an innocuous question, I ask people, what do you pray about? I ask people what they prayed about. Do you want to know the one thing I didn't hear? Peace. We pray for a host of so many things, but how many people, I was blown away, nobody mentioned peace. Ask yourself, when's the last time you prayed for peace? Have you ever prayed for peace? And let me clarify that. When's the last time you prayed according to God's definition for peace? Not our definition of Lord smite them. <laughs> Lord shut them up. Shut them down. Have you ever not prayed just for the absence of something, but have you prayed for the Lord's vision of shalom? When's the last time you prayed for peace on earth? Goodwill to humanity. Even as I say that, it's a part of my brain, if I confess it, that I'm, I'm, I'm cynical, right? Because that's like the, the peace on earth, right? Is like the punchline of beauty pageants, right? What do you want most in the world? World peace. <laughs> it's like the go-to line. We giggle. But God's not laughing. When's the last time you prayed for peace on earth? Goodwill to humanity. When's the last time you prayed for justice for all? Justice for all, like we talked about last week. When's the last time you prayed that people, groups, would have the right to freely and equally pursue their well-being and goals? When is the last time you prayed that people would be reconciled with the people they're at war with? When's the last time you prayed for reconciliation instead of choosing sides? When's the last time that you prayed for reconciliation, even nation against nation, let alone person against person? When's the last time you prayed for people who seek to inflict terror, persecution, and abuse on others, that not just that they would be shut down or blown into smithereens, but they would be caused to stop, that their hearts, their minds would be changed? And when's the last time you prayed against retaliation and violence? That's a tough one, man, because we like our share of retaliation and violence. When's the last time you prayed against retaliation and violence and prayed for forgiveness and restoration instead? 
thing about prayer, why it's this it's un, unappreciated, undervalued discipline, this practice, is prayer, when we pray, why prayer is so important is it aligns us with God's definition and vision, right? All of a sudden, we remember what God sees, what God wants when we pray. Prayer has this way of also settling our anxieties and calming our fears. So rather than acting out of our anxiety and fears, we act out of this trust. We act out of this connection, this this grace that God gives us. But for me, what's amazing about prayer is prayer also is undervalued because when we pray, it expands our point of view. It gives us insight and inspires our imagination. Because remember, when we talk about being committed to peace, living in peace is not just staying out of conflict. For many of us, we think that's what peace is. Oh, I'm a peaceful person. When there's a conflict, I run the other way. I'm out of there. Shalom is about advancing reconciliation and restoration. Shalom is about harmony and prosperity. Jesus specifically called us, think about this, not just to be lovers of peace, promoters of shalom, He called us to be peacemakers. Jesus said that led by the Spirit, we have been prepared and we need to be prepared to go out of our way to create the sort of peace envisioned by God's prophets and established by him. In fact, Jesus links the Holy Spirit with this giving of peace, right? He, He says, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom my Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. Are you a peacemaker? Even that, right? In our society, peacemakers are the wimps. Peacemakers are the idealists, they're not realistic. That's not what God thinks. That's not what Jesus calls us to. Jesus says, be a peacemaker. And being a peacemaker isn't being one who is just made in the image of God. Being a peacemaker is living as one made in the image of God. And we have here in Micah what that looks like, what the commitment to peace looks like, to being a peacemaker. More often than not, it's allowing and exchanging our tools the old defense mechanisms, the old patterns of behavior we have for the instruments of grace that God gives us to do the work of the kingdom of God. And I talked about this before, but I want to hit this. To be a peacemaker takes creativity and imagination. And that's why prayer is so important because God wants to tap into the creativity he gives us. God wants to unleash our imagination. I preached last week, and it's so funny because John mentioned it at communion and I heard it from other people. I thought last week's sermon was really, really hopeful. And everyone was like, ow, man, you beat us up, ow. And I didn't see it that way because the story that I shared at the end was designed to show us something that we miss in the prophets, whether we're talking about justice or we're talking about peace, is that God doesn't tear us down so we can leave sore and, oh, man, that hurt. God tears down all the stuff that's not true, all the stuff that's false in our lives in order to open us up to all the untapped possibility and promise that we're missing because of all the junk. The ability to dream and to imagine is part of the gift of faith, in other words. God wants us to imagine something different rather than to be stuck with what is. Scripture, the prophets, they're not just killjoys. They're not just coming in to give you, make everything a downer. Prophets are coming in to tell us what's real in order to do it so we can imagine something different. My friends, that's what I want to cultivate in you this morning. If you're committed to peace, where are you letting God capture your imagination and blow open your creativity so that you can envision and live out peace in this world?
Love is God's answer to fear. It's at the root of his vision for peace. Love is what I'm asking you to let your imagination be captured by. The love of Christ. Love is where I'm letting your creativity to run wild. The love of Jesus. Because the love of Christ pushes us to integrity between thought and action by challenging our assumptions that lay behind our hidden or unhidden fears. I tried to make a short list of just what does that look like? What's creative and imaginative possibilities of peace? And here's my short list. When I think about God's vision for peace being lived out in the world, being lived, that commitment being lived out, I think back years ago to what was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. I grew up where apartheid was real. Racism in South Africa. And when it was abolished, when it finally went away, there, and again, many of you may remember this, some of you may have never even heard of it. South Africa had an opportunity where it could have been a time of vengeance, getting back those who had persecuted, killed many. And instead, they established the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, established by those who were followers of Jesus, who said, no, we're not going to seek vengeance. What we want is for people to confess what they've done. There's got to be truth. And if truth is spoken, there will be reconciliation. That was imaginative. That was creative. I don't think it's been replicated very often. When I think about creativity and imagination of peace, I think about this story, and I, I, forgive me, I tried for the life of me to remember, of this, uh, this story I heard of an Anglican bishop in Mozambique who brought an end to a violent 19-year civil war, inspired by Micah, by the way. He brought an end to a 19-year-old civil war in Mozambique by advocating amongst the community and villages the return of weapons in exchange for tools, sewing machines, and building materials. And over the course of a decade, this is crazy, over one million weapons were exchanged. That's the kind of creativity and imagination God wants to unleash. When I think about God's vision for peace, our commitment to living it out, I think back to only a couple of years, and it's still shocking and scandalous because we've had many other incidents since. I think back to that Amish community, do you remember them? Who in the midst of their grief after a shooter gunned down 10 of their children, Ten of their children, and how much gun violence have we had since? But that community did not seek vengeance, did not go on a rampage, but reached out with grace and compassion towards the killer's family. That's the kind of creativity and imagination that God wants to unleash. I asked last week, and some of you haven't responded yet, for your ideas. It doesn't have to be original. You can point to things you gravitate towards where you see God unleashing the creativity and imagination of his people, of the body of Christ. Many of you have not responded yet, but there is one testimony on our Grace Facebook site that I would encourage you to read about because this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. It's the story of a sexual abuse survivor who offered all of her pain and grief to the Lord and experienced her mourning turning into dancing as she started a foundation where other survivors could get the support and counseling they need to come out the other side. Her willingness to share that with our community that's creativity and imagination. That's boldness. My friends, it doesn't take much. Peacemaking involves modeling neighborly love. Are you a loving neighbor? Would your neighbors consider you loving? Do they even know who you are? Are you hospitable in the neighborhood? Are you generous? Are you the calm presence in the community? Or the one that everyone, everyone avoids your house? Do you bring people together? This creativity and imagination of peacemaking is about bringing people together. Do you bring people together into harmonious relationships? Or are you like most people like to stir the pot, stir people up, divide the room, get people riled up? Being a peacemaker, that's easy to get people ticked off at each other. It's easy to people to get them ticked. 
It's a lot harder to bring them together, especially people who think they're different. That's peacemaking. Are you a person that is willing to navigate conflict in a healthy and humble manner rather than burying your head in the sand or running the other way? That's creative. That's imaginative peacemaking. Are you willing to facilitate forgiveness and reconciliation in your relationships wherever possible? I'm not saying to force it. You can't force people to forgive each other and reconcile, but you can speak up. You can give them a vision of not living, continuing to live this way. I am amazed at how many families, I am amazed at how many friendships live in separation. And it's not just because of the two people who won't talk to each other. It's because of everyone else around them who chooses to remain silent. To say nothing. To not say, hey, can I just maybe say that there might be another possibility here? Can I just say that five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years is long enough? That this isn't how we're supposed to live together? Do you have that kind of creativity? Do you have that kind of imagination? Are you creative enough? Are you imaginative enough rather than bearing a fist to turn the other cheek? Are you creative enough? Are you imaginative enough to stand up to offer comfort and encouragement and living hope to people who are, believe they've been forsaken, who believe they are lonely, who believe they're not worthy? God wants us to live into his vision for peace and we have to see it. We have to be willing to see it. We have to decide to believe it and we have to be committed to living it. And being committed to living it means we have to let God through his spirit and by his grace enliven our creativity and our imagination. <laughs> you know, it's crazy in all this. One of the most powerful hopes we share as human beings is the hope for peace. All the ways we mock it, all the ways we cheapen it, we make fun of it. You get people together, you get real and everybody wants peace, Right? Peace is something we long for, isn't it? Peace among nations, peace within our country, peace on our streets, peace in our families, peace in our dwelling places, peace in our hearts. There's not a person who says, oh, I love chaos. I love it. Yeah, I love it when it's all messed up. We all want peace. Peace is something we try to make. Peace is something we try to negotiate. Peace is something we try to achieve. We are willing to beg, borrow, and steal for just a little moment of peace. And yet thousands upon thousands of years of human history, after thousands upon thousands of years of human history, if we're honest, peace in our time, true and lasting peace for most of us, sounds like a fantasy than a probable reality. We're not there yet in terms of Micah's vision. The picture is coming into view, but it's not filled out. As he describes it in verse 5 of the chapter we looked at, many people are still following after other gods. But nonetheless, he continues, the Lord's promise of peace is on the move. Jesus has come, my friends, and made peace with us through his cross and resurrection. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has graciously given us his peace. Therefore, may we, by faith, walk together and share the shalom by allowing the gospel of the God of peace to transform our eyes, to change our prayers, and to even blow open our imaginations in ways that see, that hope for, and finally enact peace through our words and deeds. Amen. Amen.